don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. I think if we don't call these people out when they do something wrong, who's going to do it? We were joined by the head of influence at Ogilvy, Rahul Titus, to find out how influence and marketing has changed as a result of COVID-19 and how brands and agencies should act to future-proof the industry. Yes, Rahul has spent over 10 years in advertising with a large proportion of that working in influence and marketing, and it certainly showed in our conversation. We spoke all about why the name influence and marketing is irrelevant the tragedy of the common situation in influencer marketing, and the two trends that will excite both creators and marketers going forward. The rise of e-com and the rise of influencer-led virtual experiences, especially together, is massive. And if you're not doing it already, you should definitely start looking at it now. All this and more, coming up. How can we future-proof the influencer marketing industry and why is that necessary now? I mean, I think it's more necessary now than ever before. I'd probably start by talking about something called the tragedy of the commons, right? So this is something that we've seen time and time again happen. Uh, social media generally went through it about 10 years ago. And I think we're seeing that in, in, in like influencer marketing right now. So just to like, you know, set the scene. So when I say tragedy of the commons, what I mean is basically this real you know, economic issue that we see in, you know, industries where you have shared resources or things like fishery and, you know, you know, forestry, et cetera, where basically demand outweighs supply, which then leads to the overexploitation of the shared resource. And I think for me, if you look at what's happening with influencer marketing, it's actually very, very similar because you've got a lot of people who can see how influencer marketing can help their plan. So you've got a lot of bad players in the industry who basically still do those very similar campaigns and, you know, churn out campaigns that just don't really work. And I think that is a real, real big issue right now. I think with lockdown and what's happened with the COVID-19 pandemic, it's actually gone even worse because unlike a lot of other parts of, you know, comms, you know, marketing comms that actually you can't do right now with influencer marketing, you can because it's an industry that's born out of, you know, like bedrooms. So I think what's happened now is that you've got a lot more bad players, uh, which means that us as an industry, we need to do more to really help future-proof this whole uh, industry. Because if not, we're going to have a tragedy of the commons where we actually overexploit what is a shared resource and these bad players will basically make it unbeneficial for us to basically share this moving forward. So generally, there is a real need for us to think about what we as industry leaders can help, you know, do to basically future-proof that industry. And that, I think, starts with a lot of education. Mm. There's a lot of brands you'd be still surprised who still don't understand how influence marketing works. This is my 10th year doing influencer marketing, which is scary on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, But even today, like, I still spend a lot of time talking to brands about uh, who is an influencer and how you can actually use them effectively. Because this, so, this this actually leads into our second question, Rahul. So, you know, what, what are the biggest mistakes that these brands are making right now that we, we, we commonly hear about? Yeah, sure. So for me, the number one mistake that I see brands and marketeers still make is that they treat influencers as any other channel. So they look at them as a channel like social media. They look at them as a channel like TV or radio or print or, you know, any of the other channels they have in their marketing mix where they look at it as a media buy, which I think is a number one issue because we think of what influencers can bring to a brand. They are creative directors. They are creative people who have influence over a lot of people that you don't have influence over. And that's why people use influencers in like in the first place. But somehow along the way, brands seem to forget that. And I think when they try and bring them into the into their brand journey, they forget what the influencers, I mean, like what the influencer brings themselves. So for me, 
we really need to start thinking about how influencers can actually add to that customer journey and not just become another media channel. That is still the number one mistake I see today because authenticity, um, again, was a big issue when I first started out 10 years ago. And even today, it is still the biggest issue. So you need to let these influencers be authentic to themselves and their audiences, or there's no point doing it. I would rather brands actually walk away from a very advanced deal than actually try and force it because I mean, as soon as you force it, you know it's not going to work. And I've seen that hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that brands or some brands and agencies can be like quite against giving the influencer all of this control is because they see it as a risk not being able to have full control over what they're posting, where their brand is concerned. I guess, like, what would you say to the brands who consider it a risk? Do you think that's valid or do you think they're being too cautious? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see it as a risk at all. I mean, I don't understand what the risk is, because again, you are contracting these influencers to do work for you. You still have control of what goes out and what doesn't go out. And again, if you've done your influencer marketing right, you are very well protected as a brand. I think we need to stop seeing influencer marketing as this binary channel where there's only one way it works. So, you know, for me, that that risk is, to be honest, really non-existent because it is a collaboration. If you wanted to just reach a certain number of people, there's hundreds of other channels who can do that more effectively than influence. So for me, if you are looking at influencers, then you need to look at them as creative directors who are coming into the customer journey with you, or there's no point doing it. And, you know, that's something I actually advise all my brands and clients that I work with. I actually tell them, if you're, you know, if you're going to do this, these, these are the foundation rules of influencer marketing, and you need to basically trust the process. And yes, you might not get it right the first time or even the second time, but at least then you've done it right and you know what works and what doesn't work. Um, but, you know, but for me, that risk is actually a non-existent risk. So beyond distribution. Yeah, no, absolutely. Beyond distribution, you know, in 2020, what would you say are the sort of components of influencer marketing success? Like what sort of targets would you be looking to hit if you were to involve influencers? Would it be long-term awareness? Would it be something else? Yeah, sure. So I think for me, Influencers as a distribution channel is actually less than 40% of why we use influencers at Ogilvy, just for context. I think a lot of people assume that it is a great distribution channel, and it is, right? So there is obviously great organic reach, and you know you can reach a whole new audience that you couldn't reach through some of your other channels, which is why people use it. There's no doubt about it. But I think there's so much more that influencers can actually deliver for you. A lot of the work that we do within uh, Ogilvy is generally looking at how influencers can be part of that whole journey. And what I mean by that is actually connecting all those dots so just to give you some context, so some research that we did at Ogilvy last year across all of our campaigns in EMEA, what we saw is that every time you add influence into another channel, the ROI from influencer marketing goes up by 35%. Mm. And that's massive. And that's mainly because of the fact that you can actually connect those dots really effectively. You know, there's no reason why you couldn't use your influencer across your casting for an ATL. There's no reason you couldn't use their voice for a radio ad. There's no reason why you couldn't use them across digital art of home, across paid social ads and you know many more channels so for me normally if there's a channel that isn't connected to influencer marketing we actually spend a lot of time trying to connect it in because that's when you basically start seeing what i call outcome-based influencer marketing where you're not really planning across just outputs like sales and i'm mean, sorry like engagement rates and reach and impression you're actually planning against what your outcome is and that outcome might be so much bigger than engagement rates right so it's really important that you think about what these influencers do for you and, and then how you can actually make it bigger. Because it's not just enough to have these influencers basically create a campaign where somebody is posting with a product on their channel. You know, I mean, us as consumers, I mean, how many times have you actually seen that and gone, oh, that's that's great. I really want to buy that product. You know, you just kind of look at it and go, 
meh. It's just like drowned in another social media landfill and we need to start avoiding that. Rahul, would you, th- would you say then it's like fair to say that influencer marketing could do with a little bit of a reputation shakeup? Because we have seen so many failed campaigns like that. And there was the whole trend of, you know, influencer fraud, influencers buying engagement and followers. And, you know, after so many like failed attempts and so much backlash, I think some brands are quite wary of that as well. Without a doubt. And I think that's exactly why we need people in the industry, people who've done it for years, like, you know, social chain, etc., to really start taking that lead as well and actually get these brands to understand why they're doing it wrong and, you know, and then how they can make it better. Yes, I think there is two issues there. So one is fraud. So fraud has been an issue for quite a while now. So I'm sure you've seen the studies where, you know, one in four influencers have engaged in fraud against brands. And that's actually not changed. You know, that's from a 2018 study. It was the same in 2019 and in 2020. And for us, that's a really big issue, which is why, I think brands really need to get their agencies or, or, you know, themselves really invest in the tools and technology that's out there to basically make sure that fraud isn't an issue. No, definitely. Without a doubt, you can control fraud. There's enough tools out there. And again, there's some really good agency partners around there, like Ogilvy and Social Chain, who actually have that technology to make sure that fraud is not an issue for brands. So when you can do it, why wouldn't you do it, is my first question. So I think, yes, fraud needs to be eliminated and technology is really caught up with us so we can actually make sure that's not an issue at all. On the reputation, yes. So I think we need to do more as an industry to really start you know, showcasing what influencer marketing isn't. I think a lot of brands still look at influencer marketing as those projects, those one-off campaigns that somebody holds a product up. And we need to say that, you know, this is not good enough. So I spend a lot of time making sure that we actually talk to the industry about how we can make it bigger and how you can actually connect those dots. So that's, you know, that's kind of where we need to change that whole uh, reputation for the whole industry. So yes, it's got an issue and we need to fix it. No, our, our influencer department especially is trying to do a lot of work at the moment about educating brands of the benefits of long-term influencer campaigns. So like you get a lot more of it if you work with the same influencer for a year than just like you said, a one-off post. Exactly that. I was going to say on that subject then, Raul, uh, in terms of the, um, you know, influencer kind of reputation shakeup, and anybody who's read many reports on this will know that creators or influencers, that the influencers become a sort of dirty word in a way. Creators don't always like being called influencers. How do they feel about the term then influencer marketing? Yeah, I mean, it, it varies, right? So we call it influence at Ogilvy. We don't call it influencer marketing because I I think influencer marketing doesn't really even cover, you know, like the basics of what we do. So for us, it's influence. I know a lot of other people call it advocacy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, to be honest, it doesn't matter because we could change the name, you know, we could like change the logo, but then the problem is still the same, right? Yeah. I think what we'd rather do is actually reshake in terms of what influence really means. And I think as an industry, and I think this is a real issue that comes up quite a lot, we tend to focus influencer marketing on very specific social media bloggers. And that is a real issue for me. So for example, two years ago at Ogilvy, we actually reshaped the whole department and we re, you know, renamed it as influence, mainly because for us, anybody that has influence over a consumer is an influencer. And for us, that means a whole spectrum of influence. And that could be anybody from a big celebrity. So let's say an Olivia Coleman for BA, you know, not on social media, but absolutely perfect as an influencer for a brand like BA. It could be a Zoella for a brand like HomeSense, who again has worked at the brands for years and years and years. It could be a bartender for Bacardi. Again, they don't have a lot of followers, but they've got the right followers in the right industry that we're trying to look at, especially when it comes to on-trade for a brand like Bacardi and the whole portfolio. It could be a makeup blogger for Boots. Again, very niche, very specific, that works. It could be, again, with a brand like EY, it could get even niche. It could be employee advocacy that we look at, or it could be something like Superfans for a brand like TK Maxx. 
So for us, that spectrum of influence is really broad. Everybody from celebrities to employees to gatekeepers to, you know, nano influencers to, um, you know, to actual consumers are all influencers because they influence in different ways. So for me, you know, as an industry, that term is quite old school, influencer marketing. So that's why we use the word influence because it is influence. I mean, the whole point of what we're trying to do with influencer marketing is actually influencing people. So why not actually call it influence? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, but on the other end, talking about the creators, I mean, yes, I used to work in talent management uh, before Ogilvy at James Grant. And I know that a lot of people absolutely hate the word influencers. And to be honest, I think, I think as long as we can fix the underlying issue of what they deliver for brands... For me, that terminology almost doesn't matter. I think it's what people take out of it that's actually more important. But the term influencer marketing is not going away anywhere. It is now a common industry standard term. Yeah, that's what we know it by now, isn't it? I mean, Rahul, you you talk about like the broad spectrum of influence. In your opinion, and I guess with your experience in mind, what do you think is more valuable in terms of ROI for a brand right now? Is it getting that one big influencer uh, to the point where they're even a celebrity? Or is it having lots of smaller ones like closer to the ground? Yeah, I mean, great question. And I think that really depends on the campaign. So that's why we talk about outcome. And, you know, so I mean, I talk a lot about outcome, not output based influence marketing. So when I say outcome, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. So I mean, there's a lot of reports I see where somebody says we've had 5% engagement rate or 10% engagement rate, you know, this campaign's a success. Um, and then I've sat in many meetings where I've seen the CMO who basically looks at it and go, you know, what does that mean for me though? I mean, I'm glad you've hit 5% engagement rate. What does that actually mean for us as a brand, right? And, that, and I'm sure you guys see that all the time. Like, mm. oh, you know, somebody says we've hit 4 million impressions. Again, what does that actually mean for the brand? Because no CMO in the world today is actually basing his or her decisions on engagement rates and vanity metrics like reach and impressions. You know, we are looking at what their business outcome is. And that normally tends to be drive sales, drive, drive awareness, drive conversion, change perception, etc. So a lot of what we do at Ogilvy is actually very strategically make sure influence is part of that whole customer journey from the very start. So when we have a brief that comes in across the whole board at OBV, we spend a lot of time thinking about what is the actual KPI or, you know, outcome that we need to deliver for this brand to make the brand matter. And 10 out of 10 times, it's never engagement rate. So why do we actually start with engagement rate as our KPI? So we actually spend a lot of time figuring out what that ROI needs to be. And then we plan based on that. Normally, we tend to see that if it is brand awareness and brand perception, celebrities tend to do a much better job at it. So brands with big reach and following. But obviously, if you're looking at conversion, especially with a niche audience, we tend to see nanos and micros and gatekeepers tend to do a much better job at it. But again, those rules are not fixed in place. So, you know, we've had campaigns where actually celebrities have actually delivered much more across the board than actually the nanos. But there's other cases where I've seen nanos and micros really deliver those sales that we need, you know, which is why we normally plan across that spectrum and do a full funnel based influencer marketing campaign where we look at what different parts of that funnel can deliver for you. So, and, you know, that's why there's no one size fits all. You kind of have to play it by industry and what you're selling and what the KPIs are. Because there's no point optimizing towards conversion if your KPI is brand awareness. And there's so many times I see people say, let's put a swipe up link. And I actually stop them and I go, but why do you want to swipe up link? If it's brand awareness, do you really need somebody to swipe up and look at you know, your product page, wouldn't you rather do another two stories and get them to actually understand what your product is without leaving your, 
you know, yeah, like your story. Without adding an extra step. Exactly that. And, you know, but, you know, but people tend to forget what their KPI was that which they set out and they try and do everything sometimes. And that is also quite detrimental. I'm glad you mentioned engagement, actually, Rahul, because uh, I was reading an interview with you, where, uh, I think with PR Week, where you were basically making a point that, you know, brands shouldn't fear the fact that engagement rates for influencers have fallen. And mm. part of that is scrambling likes and whatnot. Can you almost see the kind of knee-jerk reaction of brands that sort of think, oh, influencer engagement rates have gone down, influencer marketing isn't working for us? And at what point do you think brands begin to understand, you know, what this is all about? Yeah, great question. I think there was a little bit of fear in the industry when Instagram dropped all their likes and they said, you know, but how do we measure influencer marketing now? I mean, it's not something that we had a lot of issues with because a lot of our brands, we talk about transformative influence. And again, it's basically talking about influencer marketing as part of their plans for years and years and years. You know, like a lot of the brands we look after, things like Boots and DK Maxx and Bacardi, et cetera, they've been brands of ours for years, which means that we talk about influence in the long term. And I think brands that actually plan only for short term campaigns, which tend to be campaign moments only, are the brands that actually started really panicking about influencer marketing, engagement rates really dropping. Brands that actually have influence as part of their long term plans, actually, you saw them not really change their marketing spend at all. So if you look at the industry as a whole, brands that have done this for a very long time, that's over two years or so, you know, which in influencer marketing is a very long time. Actually, they haven't cut their spend. They've actually increased their spend because they know it's delivered over the years and the change in likes is not going to be an issue. Brands have just started doing this recently, are just spending on it campaign by campaign. Other brands have actually started panicking. And for me, generally, that is reflective of that education piece that you were talking about earlier as well, because people don't know enough about it. I think of influencer marketing as, you know, where like social media was 10 years ago. So we are now currently in that teenage phase. You know, influencer marketing is this cranky teenager trying to figure out where he or she fits in the world. And they're trying to see how that works for them. And we are a very young industry. So we're still figuring that out as we go on. But thankfully, we've got some really smart people. I mean, I know so many people who work in this industry who are absolute geniuses and they're really pushing that forward in terms of that education. And I think as we have brands understand what it can deliver beyond that engagement rate, we will see that stability come in as well. In which, in um, which case then, Rahul, what I want to ask you here is, you know, if we're in the sort of cranky teenage phase, what does the future look like there, I say, because we're hearing stuff now about live streaming been a major cornerstone, for instance, in influencer mm, Especially over the last well. few months. Exactly. Massively. So we just launched a white paper actually last week talking about what does COVID-19 mean for influencer marketing and what that actually changes. And like some of the trends we're seeing are actually really interesting. So one of the big trends that I'm seeing is a hyper-local influence. And when I say hyper-local influence, what I mean is basically, you know, because influencer marketing tends to happen on a very national scale. But as we start coming out of lockdown, you don't need a big national influencer to talk about the coffee shop down my road opening up. You know, that's just money not spent very efficiently. So I'm seeing a lot of brands really starting to invest in hyper-local influence. So using influencers that are very local to a community to talk about what's happening in that community. And I think especially today, we've seen, you know, like the rise of community really come up. Like, you know, community has become so important right now, post-lockdown, during lockdown. And for me, that's a big trend. So as Bacardi, you know, like one of our big brands starts opening bars around the country, there's no reason for us to talk about, um, you know, get a national influencer to talk about a bar down in Highbury opening up. You know, you can get a local influencer who's local to that area to really talk about that. And again, technology today allows us to find those influences that are very hyper-local, that are very niche and actually talks to a very community level. So that's a big trend I'm seeing coming up. We're seeing influencer-led production pieces really ramping up. I mean, I'm sure you're kind of sick of seeing those ads on TV with all shot on Zoom. But if you <laughs> look at, you know, but if you look at it right now, they're actually getting better. So 
the ads from the last few months have been really interesting. Actually, if you think of them, you know, their quality is amazing and they're all using influencers. So Social Lab, which is another, you know, agency that's part of the Ogilvy network. So we do TikTok and we've just created an ad for TikTok with Gordon Ramsay and some, you know, Tiny Temper and Little Mix and some really big celebrities. And the ad's really good, but the ad's good, not because of just the creative. It's good because of the fact that these influencers know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. They've been filming in their bedrooms for all years. Like we need to be taking notes from them right now. Exactly that, exactly that. And and for me, it's really interesting kind of having a conversation with, with creative directors at Ogilvy, for example, who basically have never been used to that kind of, you know, setting. So people are actually embracing influencers a lot more than we realize. No, definitely. I mean, even like for us, like when uh, we realized that obviously we wouldn't be able to do production like normal, we've started outsourcing it to the influencers that we work with because they know what they're doing in terms of filming. So do you agree then that brands should relinquish more creative control to influencers? Because I think in the last few months, especially, we've being able to prove that, you know, even if you don't have 100% control over the content, it can still turn out really great. Yes, absolutely that. And I think also people are much more forgiving right now. So Boots is a brand of ours that obviously we work on. And I think they're a great example of that, right? So, I mean, one of my biggest trends of influencer marketing post COVID-19 is actually embrace and pivot. You know, embrace this new reality. Where we are right now is not normal. I think a lot of brands have switched off their activations and gone, we're gonna wait for things to go back to normal. Yeah, I just be waiting forever. <laughs> exactly that, you know, because there's no there's no going back to normal. This is the new normal we live in. And the brands that have actually really embraced and like pivoted to match this new reality are the brands that are doing well. So Boots is a great example of a brand that actually is kind of there. Again, because we've got a series, for example, called Boots X, which is on our Instagram channel, and it's and it's basically a loyalty program that sits on Instagram TV and it's really getting younger audiences to embrace, you know, Boots as a beauty brand. And again, at the start of lockdown, we made that decision to basically say, okay, the world is changing. We need to change this content. There's no point talking about festivals in the middle of lockdown because nobody's going to go to any festivals. So we actually changed all of that to really start looking at what the new reality is. So we started doing content around, you know, virtual house party looks, work from home office look or Zoom date look. So these kind of, you know, this kind of content really helps people embrace the new reality. It's so much more like valuable when it's that specific as well. Like it's very clear that that reflects, you know, what that brand does. Whereas, you know, everyone's seen that advert where it's like mushed together, lots of different statements from different brands that like all coming out with the same message and then just like halting their normal activations. Or, you know, we've also, I think it was our influencer team as well, discovered that, you know, prescriptive content. So like do this, do that. Is, has not been working. But but the examples that like you've just provided, obviously, something that's really valuable, something that people can use and still attach to your brand um, is like a really good way to go. Exactly that. And and plus, I think, you know what's interesting? I mean, the content's actually doing better than we've ever thought it would do. Uh, it's actually doing better than pre-lockdown content as well. Because again, that's what people want. So I think my biggest advice is embrace this new reality. I mean, we are here. It's not going to change. We might as well see where we are. And, and also people are much more forgiving. I think that's the other thing. There's not been a better time in the history of influencer marketing for you to try influencer marketing um, because people are much more forgiving about the content you're putting out. You know, brands that have never tried live, I've seen them do live. And some brands have done it well. Some brands have done it horrendously badly, but you still tried it. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, you know, there's so much merit in trying different types of content. And I think a lot of brands get stuck in a bit of a rut sometimes with content when they find like a, a method that works. And actually audiences on social, as we know, really like to see something new because they get used to scrolling all day, every day. And I think this has been a really good way to sort of push brands out of their comfort zone in that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I was actually looking at my phone this morning and my uh, usage has gone up 44%. 
during lockdown, yeah. which is yeah. scary. You know, which, no, which is scary, but that's just the reality of where we are. I mean, everybody's using their phones a lot more. And, you know, for me, that's an opportunity as well. As a brand, if you don't look at this and go, this is a great opportunity for us to try something new, try something different, and also engage our audiences like you've never done before, then I think you're really missing out on a big opportunity. And I genuinely believe as you start coming out of lockdown as well, people are going to remember you by what you did or didn't do during the COVID-19 pandemic. So if you've actually switched off completely and not really done anything, then that's something people will remember. Mm. Rahul, you mentioned earlier this idea of kind of localised influence and also that, you know, I know there's very much a trend of YouTubers are very much, you know, tribal to YouTuber and you've got Instagrammers that tribal to uh, Instagram. Do you do you see that as a trend that's sort of continuing or do you think influencers are more happy to sort of spread themselves across different platforms? And I'm obviously talking about the arrival of TikTok, which is a massive yeah. opportunity. Mm. Yeah. Yes, TikTok has really revolutionized the industry. And I think we're quite lucky that we work with TikTok quite a bit. What I would say is that you are seeing two things happen. So you're seeing influencers really diversify their platform portfolios. So you've seen, like you mentioned that here, you've seen people, YouTubers try Instagram and try YouTube and sorry, and try TikTok and try Twitter and try LinkedIn. Another great channel that people ignore quite a lot. LinkedIn's great. And I know you guys at Social Chain do that very, very well. LinkedIn, again, is like a great channel. There's, but you've got people who are basically you know, diversifying their portfolio, but you still have a primary channel they're very good at. And there's other people who are actually, you know, starting fresh on these new channels and really just using those channels. I think they both work. But what's interesting is that I think for me, what I see work extremely well is actually keeping people where they're very good at. So if you are working with an influencer who is Instagram first, use them on Instagram. Don't try and force them to go onto TikTok and YouTube and all these other channels because it just doesn't seem to work as much. I'm sure there's instances where it does work, but generally... There's a reason why somebody is really big on Instagram or big on YouTube and not on TikTok. And if you try and mix all of that, you might actually lose, you know, messaging, which might not be worth the point. TikTok on its own, though, I think you have to treat TikTok very differently. I think you look at what TikTok is and, you know, what it does and how it behaves and how it works. It actually is designed to be very, very different to any other social channel we have. Engagement rates on TikTok are through the roof. And if you try and average it with your you know, with your normal channels, you're just, you know, that's just going to basically look really stupid. Again, the content going viral is a lot more probable on a channel like TikTok. So for me, TikTok needs to have its own strategy that is actually very separate to your strategy for for your other influencer channels. And for me, I would actually try and keep it separate as well till we find a way to bring that into the same influencer marketing fold. But if you're not using TikTok, I would highly recommend you do for influence. There's, you know, there's been some amazing campaigns on there and these campaigns do much, much better right now. You know, first move advantage new generation of, yeah, Sorry. the new the new generation of YouTubers. It is. Uh, you look at someone like Charlie D'Amelio, she's like bigger than any other YouTuber right now. It's crazy the amount of numbers that girl has. Exactly that, exactly that. And I think brands are still really scared, but I don't understand the fear that much either. I think as long as you know what your safety parameters are as a brand, you should be on TikTok because they are a great channel and you are seeing audiences on there. And people assume it's just a young audience. People assume it's just Gen Z, but you'd be surprised the number of over 25s that are on the platform. I mean, I still get up and, you know, like actually look at TikTok every morning because it makes me smile. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I mean, we we actually did a webinar on TikTok a couple of days ago with our creative team in the US have uh, done like a research doc, uh, on it, which includes like stats like that, obviously, about the audience being a lot older than people think and how it's not 
all just dance challenges. So yeah, that's some really interesting stuff in there. But those dance challenges are fun though. You know, but those dance challenges are really fun. And I think, I mean, I've seen so many people from my window try and do TikTok videos. And I mean, I don't know if I should be laugh, you know, like laughing or actually, you know, going and high find them because it's just funny to watch this whole TikTok revolution that's happening around the world. Well, on yeah, the, I, no. I, I quickly want to uh, tap in with something that you just mentioned actually, Rahul, which was that TikTok, you know, it's this, uh, going back to that idea of first mover advantage. Does that to you suggest that maybe the current engagement rates that we're seeing now and the current reach is maybe on a sliding scale that we might not expect in the next few years, as we've seen with Instagram and so on? Yes, I do. I think it's a trend that we've seen across all social media channels across the years. I think when Instagram first came out, it was very similar. You know, we had the same on YouTube. I mean, I was like the first generation of YouTube kids that, you know, grew up and I was like, you know, like 15, 16. And you had a lot more views, that like a lot higher engagement rate. And I'm sure it's going to plateau and actually, you know, like the whole market's going to correct itself. But right now it's on a spiral that is really high. And I don't see why brands wouldn't want to take advantage of that. But as a platform, they built very differently. And that's very obvious when you look at the content on that platform. It's, it's made for viral content. I mean, one of the comments we had on our TikTok webinar last week, which surprised me, was like a lot of concern, again, going back to risk and people considering it as a very like UGC-led platform and saying that the risk of someone on TikTok saying something inappropriate attached to your brand uh, would be very high. For example, if a brand put out like a, a challenge with a hashtag, it's it's sort of like those, uh, we've seen it on Twitter a few times when brands put out campaigns where the user has to fill it in and is always worried that they're going to do something daft. But I just think like that amount of risk can be expected with anything you do in terms of people's response but i think the the value far far outweighs the risk i mean absolutely and i mean it does depend on how you know what your risk appetite is and like you're right i mean as a brand if you are risk averse then maybe tiktok's not right for you but if you're actually willing to take that risk on your other platforms then why not on tiktok either i mean hashtags are designed to be taken up for ugc content so that's something you're going to have at any channel you do not just tiktok so you know you might as well try it no absolutely i mean um i want to ask you some more uh, like clinical questions now, just because I know it's something that still gets asked a lot. So the first one being what the kind of measures brands should put in place to get real ROI from their influencer campaigns. And also what you think some key components to a successful influencer campaign in 2020 would be. Sure. The biggest things on ROI is I think don't plan for vanity metrics. I think vanity metrics are a nice to have. So engagement rates, reach, impression, great that you're measuring them. And I'm saying definitely measure them, but don't make them your campaign highlights. It's just not worth it. Really start thinking about outcome-based planning. Think about sales. Think about what your CMO is asking you to basically get to. I think those are your real KPIs. In terms of other ways to basically make sure ROI is, is actually high, connect the dots. Really think about how you can connect those dots and influence marketing. It is painful. I'm not going to lie. I've done many campaigns where you're connected over 30 plus channels into influencer marketing and, and it can be very painful, but the rewards are definitely worth it. So connect the dots and see how you can deliver that ROI. And I think thirdly, think bigger. I cannot stress on that enough. I think people tend to think that influencer marketing has a very simple job of delivering reach as a media channel, but it has so much potential because you're talking about people doing things for people which is just a very different place as, you know, as a whole. So think bigger and really think about how you can push those boundaries a little bit. And I think that really helps in, you know, delivering better ROI. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've noticed myself, like, especially over the past few months being at home all the time, 
just how powerful it can be because you sort of get used to viewing influencer marketing from like almost an outsider's perspective when we're working in the industry but even as just like a consumer it's very obvious if you if you look for it just how easily influenced we can be by the right types of content so if anyone's ever doubting like whether or not it works or how effective it is then they should look at that exactly you know what that is amazingly good advice and to be honest that's exactly what i say to all you know like people who are very skeptical because i mean we still have people who basically come to us and say as a team you know, they go, yeah, but influencer marketing doesn't work. I hate influencers. And if you actually talk to them and see how their behaviors are actually influenced by these people, you'd be very surprised. You know, like a lot of people have been buying bikes right now. Like the number of people who have gone to bike influencers and cyclists for like reviews, you know, those people are still influencers. You just don't think of them as influencers because they don't post with a product, but then they're still influencers. So I think you're right. That is such good advice. And that's something I tell anybody who basically is, is like skeptical. I say, like, think of the last week. How many things have you bought because you've actually gone online and actually read a review from somebody who actually said this is a good product and you've actually gone out and bought it? Well, I can't help but think that there's a bit of almost sometimes a bit of toxic envy there when people speak about influencers and influence. I think people sometimes throw their own biases onto influencers. And I'm just wondering if that sometimes breeds into campaigns and the, and the way advertisers talk. And, you know, interested to know what being truthful in the early days, what many traditional network agencies might have thought of all this because it's not been around forever obviously no i mean i've had to fight a lot of those battles as you can imagine because i did set up a team at mediacom and i set up a team at ogilvy and i've been in wpp for a while yes there's a lot of skepticism and i think there still is by the way you'd be very surprised how many people still think this is all just airy fairy fluff that is going to go away very soon i mean how many times have you guys read the article that says influencer marketing is dying in the next two months <laughs> yeah everything is dying all the time exactly right so i read four during lockdown already, you know, right from the Forbes to New York Times, where basically, apparently our industry is dead in the next few months. And you know what, I've been reading it for the last eight years. It's not new. And I think that skepticism comes from the fact that they don't understand it. That's the number one thing I see. I think there's a lot of people who basically hate it because they don't understand what this whole social media influence thing is. Why do kids line up for two days outside VidCon to see their favorite 14-year-old influencer. You know, people don't understand that whole concept. Parents just don't get it, you know. But then again, that's kind of where our industry is. It is a new industry that people don't understand because it's just not something they're used to. That skepticism is not going away anywhere. But I mean, as an industry, as long as we know where we're taking it, we should be okay. Rahul, do you ever fear this idea of audience fatigue or that those sort of opinions might cross over into audiences to the point where they say, actually, I don't want to hear recommendations from other people. I actually just like to brand. Does that ever bother you? Or do you think that's a kind of... Yes, yes, yes. I mean, all the time, right? So um, so e-consultancy just put out a piece around nano-influencers, which is a piece that I contributed to about the rise of nano-influencers and how I think it's like 80% of most brand marketeers have considered using nano influencers in the last year. And those are people that's, you know, who've got what thousand to 10,000 followers generally. So for me, anybody that's got a following on Instagram or on your social channel becomes an influencer. So how small can you make it, right? So everybody's an influencer technically. Word of mouth was our original influencer marketing and it's not going away anywhere. So yes, I think that skepticism is there, but then that's kind of why we started off this piece talking about the education. I think we need to do more. You'd be surprised how many bad players are there in this industry. So if you look at your Instagram right now, I can bet you two out of the 10 pieces that you're going to see is going to be somebody holding a product 
for something that has nothing to do with the background or the setting or the caption. And that still happens. It always seems to be the bigger influencers as well who do that. And I'm talking like your celebrity level. Yeah. The Kardashians, the Kardashians are like notorious for it. And I think it just sets such a bad example, perhaps when it's the ones in the spotlight who are doing it wrong. But this is where we sort of bring back the value of like nanos and micros, like you say, because uh, oftentimes their work can be much more authentic because they're actually invested in it. You know, they're like, like Kardashian's career doesn't rely on it, does it? No, but you know, but then again, I think that's why we need to call out those people. It's so important we do. I think a few years ago, I just kind of ignored it and we would just make sure that we're doing the best work we can. And then what I saw that was that, again, tragedy of the comments, you know, the whole industry was suffering. We were getting ridiculed because of something that, you know, somebody did who didn't understand the industry at all. Like the way I look at it now, the onus is on people like us, people who have done it for years, people who actually understand the industry, people who are actually market leaders, to really come and shape that a little bit. I think if we don't call these people out when they do something wrong, you know, who's going to do it? And then all of us suffer because of the fact that somebody's doing it wrong. So we might as well fix it and actually keep something going for us that actually is something we all love and, you know, we actually trust. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, even recently as well, I've seen influencers call out other influencers for similar behavior because you know like us they don't want to be tarred with the same brush and get a bad reputation when they're actually doing it right and working really hard yeah and plus it's really unfair isn't it i mean people don't realize that but these are careers you know there's influencer marketing agencies people who have done this for years people who have built their careers over it you know it's putting all of our jobs at risk as well and it's putting all of the great work that people have been doing over the years at risk as well so it becomes our prerogative to actually do that and you know and plus we should really act on it i think yeah definitely it's in our best interest for sure Raul, exactly. we've, sort of, we've sort of gone full circle here which is great because I want yeah. to touch on a point that we sort of missed earlier, which is this, uh, you know, more in terms of regulation and stuff, because uh, yes. policing influencer marketing has traditionally been always left to the ASA, the Advertising Standards Authority, and they've done the best that they can. But again, it still seems like... A little bit slow. Yeah, a little bit slow. Maybe the ASAs, maybe there's a limit to the scope of what they can necessarily yeah. do to drive the, the industry forward. From a purely regulation point of view and bringing influencers to task, who does those responsibilities lay with? I think the ASA gets a bad rep in this space. And to be honest, I actually have a lot of sympathy for them because like you said, Thea, they've, they've done the best they can for an industry that changes on a daily basis. Yeah, so it moves it moves very quickly, isn't it? I will say we, we spoke to the ASA when the podcast first started and I was actually really surprised and impressed by just how much they differ from their public image. Exactly that. I mean, they are very switched on people. They've got some really smart people working there and they genuinely care. They really want to protect end consumers. And and to be honest, you know, like you said, when you talk to them, you see how much they want to do and, you know, how much they actually have done. I think the issue we've had is that they've become the common villain across the whole industry because it's easy to blame the ASA. Because if you think about it, their regulations are pretty clear. I don't see why there's so much confusion on around disclosure because we need to be regulated as an industry. There's no doubt about it. And the ASA do a decent job of it. Yeah, they're doing a lot of uh, like proactive work as well to actually educate influencers about the rules because it was uh, Matt from the ASA that we spoke to mm -hmm. said that a lot of influencers don't actually realize the rules because like why would they they've never done it before if they're new to it it's like a brand new career so yeah the ASA actually doing a really good job at educating influencers um, but I think it's up to brands and agencies to guide them as well especially if they're working with them exactly and and you know and I think and I think that's exactly the point I was going to make is that 
yes, the ASA are there to regulate the industry, but we as an industry really to help them regulate the industry as well. Because again, they they are, you know, very low on resources for something that is as vast as social media, right? You are never going to have a team big enough to regulate social media given the size and scale and, you know, like the pace at which it moves. So I think it becomes our duty to really help them get there. So I very proudly talk about Ogilvy being an ASA compliant agency and it's something we very proudly put on our signatures and things like that, which means that actually we follow the rules always. And if you've got a brand that actually you know, doesn't, we make it our mission to make sure that they get there as well. So I think we don't regulate ourselves, then, you know, who's going to regulate us? The ASA can only do so much. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Prevention's better than the cure, isn't it? Exactly that. Yes. I mean, I couldn't agree more. That is a very good way of looking at it. Rahul, the space is only going to develop even more, isn't it? How excited are you about the uh, recent updates in social commerce on Instagram, including shops and checkout and the impact they'll have on influencer marketing? Massively, massively. A lot of our campaigns right now. So again, like I said, we work with Social Lab a lot, which is uh, which I'm also the global lead for uh, on influence. And a lot of our work is actually making sure that we can get social commerce in. So like I was saying, the white paper we launched recently talked about a few trends. So we spoke about hyperlocal influence. We spoke about how brands need to embrace and pivot. The two big trends that I'm also really excited about other than that. So one is the rise of influence e-com and how we can really get there. Because again, people assume influence e-com just means putting you know paid media behind influencer campaigns and seeing how well they convert. There's so much more to that. There's literally so much more to that. And I think brands really, really need to spend the time to understand how these platforms are allowing influencers to basically set up shop and actually sell and sell on behalf of you. And again, first movers advantage. Brands that are doing it right now are the brands that are going to be much more advanced in two years time, three years time. So if you're not really looking at influence-based e-com, Look at it now. It is changing and changing very fast. And if you're not basically part of that first sweep of brands doing it, you are going to miss out. There's no doubt about it. The other big trend I'm really excited about, which is also connected to that, is actually virtual influencer experiences. So again, with like lockdown and the loss of a cultural calendar, I mean, all of us had amazing summer plans, I'm sure. And if, I mean, if yours is anything like me, I've got literally nothing coming up, uh, which is really sad, you know, except like picnics in the park. And there's only so many of that you can do as well. <laughs> yeah. But then what's interesting is that a lot of these experiences are now moving online. So for a brand like Bacardi, we do a lot of things, you know, a lot of experiences that happen in the real world. And actually what we've done is actually embraced and pivoted them. They actually now happen online. There's so many uh, masterclasses, cocktail making classes we're doing online. We're doing so many of that content, which still gives people a cultural calendar to look forward to. And we think influencers are going to really help shape that. And again, that's connected to sales. If you create an experience that people want to buy into, be it physical or virtual, and you actually connect that to conversion-based metrics, you can definitely still make sure your product's the key feature there. So those two things, the rise of e-com and the rise of influencer-led virtual experiences, especially together, is massive. And if you're not doing it already, you should definitely start looking at it now. They, they yeah. do. Yeah. That's good advice. Two huge trends. Uh, brands are going to be listening to this, uh, Rahul, and wondering, right, Okay, I've heard it now. Where where do I sign up? Where do I start? What sort of advice do you have for them, yeah. for brands who are wondering, oh, well, right, where will my brand fit into this, uh, these trends yeah. you talk about? I think, I think you need to try it. I think it really depends on each brand and where you want to get to. So it goes back to what I was saying. Really start embracing influencer marketing. If you are reaching out to suppliers and, you know, agencies to look at what influencer marketing can do for you, really do your own homework as well. You know, see what the plan they're giving you is and really think about 
if that actually matches your overall comms plan. Because I think one of the biggest issues that we've had in the past is that we look at influencer marketing as its own little silo that sits outside of the whole comms and marketing funnel. And that's just not good enough. And that's, that's exactly why we've got agencies like Social Chain and Ogilvy and, you know, agencies that actually really connect those dots really well to think about how you can bring that into the whole customer journey. So if anybody is suggesting an influencer plan that is not on your customer journey, then there's something wrong with that plan immediately. So kind of start thinking about that, you know, connecting that dots piece and then, and then do your homework. There's plenty of research out there and lots of leading experts have actually done, you know, including this podcast, et cetera. I think kind of see where the industry is at and make sure that your partners in the space are actually in that same level and not really doing something that might actually, you know, hinder your plans in the long run. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Some absolutely actionable points and advice across that whole podcast, Rahul. So thank mm. you very much for sharing that with uh, us and with Social yeah. Minds. Really looking forward to seeing what the, uh, I think, what the next five and 10 years really, really bring, especially like you mm. said, in this new normal post-COVID-19. We will see and we will look forward to it and hopefully we'll catch up again around those times. For now, yeah. thank you ever so much for joining us. No, you know, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, I'm just as excited to see where this industry goes. I mean, every time I do one of these things, the industry's changed like 10 times already. So it'd be really nice to see where we you know get to next 100 i'm okay. sure it will have all changed again <laughs> exactly <laughs> thank you for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode if you did please remember to leave us a review on itunes because it really really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week this has been the social minds podcast with myself theo watts eve young and produced by ollie thompson 